Our second lesson is from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. <coughs> and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God for ever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We're going to spend some time now reflecting on that second Bible reading from Revelation 7. And if you do have a Bible with you, then I encourage you to have that open and be following along with me. In fact, while we're not handing out church Bibles, it's a great, I guess, chance for me to encourage you to be bringing your own Bible to church. Um, in fact, that's a good practice, whether or not we are handing out church Bibles or not. It's, I think it's great to become familiar with your own printed uh, copy of the Bible. Then you can go home and you've now become more familiar with you know, where it is on the page and it helps to reinforce it in your memory. So I encourage you to be in the, in the practice of bringing your Bible to church. We will have, as we do each week, um, an opportunity for any questions that, that come up as we go through this together. And so after we've sung at the end, um, I'll get back up and we'll have a question time. But let's, let's pray as we come to reflect a bit more in this part of God's word together. Heavenly Father, we do uh, long to have your vision for our life. Father, we, we'd love to see um, what you have in store um, for the future, for us, be the thing that fills our minds and our hearts now so that we can live for that in this present. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see, hopefully, on the screen behind me, I've called today Vision Sunday. Uh, and I'm sure you're aware that many companies have vision statements. Some of them, I guess, are better than others. I thought I'd just list a few just to help you understand what we're talking about. So Microsoft, when it was first founded, it, has, it had a vision statement that, what, that said this. It said, a computer on every desk and in every home. It's interesting to think now where that has gone, isn't it, since, since that f first began. The company LinkedIn 
has this as their vision statement. Create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. Economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. Facebook says this, connect with friends and the world around you on Facebook. And finally, my favourite, this was Nike's vision statement when uh, back in 1960, it was simply this, crush Adidas. Very opposition kind of focused vision statement there. But a vision statement says, this is our vision for what we would love to see happen. It's ambitious, it's grand, it may not be achievable, it may be slightly beyond reach, but it gives direction and it's kind of motivating in that direction. It's good to have a vision for where you're going. But for us today, we are not going to spend time talking about a vision statement for us at Richmond Anglican Church. That's not what we're going to be doing this evening. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to let God give us an actual vision of the future that he will bring about, that vision that Peter just read from us from Revelation chapter 7. It's not a pithy one-liner like those companies had, but it is meant to encourage and motivate us in the direction that God is taking us so that we live now towards that end. It's a vision of the very good end that God will bring. This is where history is leading and this is what we will be a part of if we are with Jesus to the end. So let's have a look at it again. And the first thing that we really can't miss is that this is a vision of a great multitude. It's a vision of a great multitude. Let me read again from verse 9. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. This is a vision of a great multitude who are celebrating. I think in these kind of COVID times, we've become somewhat wary of great multitudes, haven't we? Of crowds, you know, you see it on, on TV from recordings that were made before COVID times. You think, oh, that's a crowd. What? That doesn't seem right. But it hasn't always been the way and it won't always be the way. But as I, as I see here about this great multitude here, you know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of the Olympic Games. We've been hearing in this past week, if you've been listening or watching the news, the Tokyo Olympics that are scheduled to happen in July this year. There's some question marks about whether it will happen and if it does, what it will be like. But I remember uh, quite clearly the Sydney Olympic Games. I was fortunate enough to, to work at the Sydney Olympic Games and I still remember the buzz and the excitement that was just kind of all around during those games and particularly during the opening and closing ceremonies. You know, people gathered together from nations all around the world there to celebrate the competition, the achievement, the camaraderie that are all kind of part of the, this amazing spectacle that is the Olympic Games. So think about that and then multiply it you know, by orders of magnitude. People as far as the eye can see celebrating. You know, hundreds of thousands of people at the Olympic Games, that's a big number. But you could count that high if you had the patience. This is a multitude that no one could count. And this vision is showing us that what we are a part of now, that's where we're headed. 
that great countless multitude celebrating the salvation of God and of the Lamb. And I, and I think the first purpose of showing us this kind of great multitude is that it's meant to encourage us or to, I guess, flip that around, that we shouldn't feel discouraged if we feel like we are you know, a small and not very significant minority. You might have noticed that from time to time in the media, the media like to try and make it seem like Christianity is on its last legs. You know, a shrinking, dying legacy of the past, and so there's not much future in this old and soon-to-be irrelevant movement. And as we kind of look around in our little moment in history and uh, in our little part of the world, we are coming out of a time where Christianity in the West has been more or less mainstream. You know, a church in every suburb, at least, sometimes on every corner. But that's by no means been normal throughout history or, or around the world. And it certainly wasn't normal in the first century. And for the Christians that this vision was first given to, this vision was given to a small and persecuted church. It was given to the last living apostle of Jesus, who, as Peter told us, was in prison for being an apostle of Jesus. And he was the last because the rest had all been executed. These Christians were surrounded by an overwhelming majority, many of whom were committed to stamping them out. And this vision was given to encourage them and to encourage us. That this is where history is heading. This is the direction that this small and, and what maybe felt like an insignificant minority of Jesus' followers, this is where they're heading a great multitude that no one can count. And even just historically, from the perspective of those people who first received this vision, and, or, or for us looking back on history, you know, we, history has demonstrated the truth of this. You know, we now are worshipping this same Jesus on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago that, those, that that small group of people were. On the other side of the world, so long later. And in that time, millions of people have put their trust in Jesus and followed him. But this is talking about even more than that, that whatever it might look like in any particular moment in history, any particular part of the world, this is where the eternity is heading. This great multitude saved by the blood of Jesus and praising God for his great salvation. And, and notice, not just a great multitude, but a multicultural, international multitude, let me read again verse 9. It was a multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language. Yeah, Christianity is sometimes thought of a Western, a wider European religion. That's not true historically, nor is it true biblically. The vision of the resurrected Jesus was to see the world come under the sound of the gospel and to come into the salvation that we have through Jesus. And that's what we're seeing in this vision. You know, we might be seeing Christianity becoming less mainstream in some parts of the world, although that doesn't necessarily mean less actual Christians. But the exact opposite certainly is happening in other parts of the world, particularly in Africa and in Asia. God is doing his thing to bring about this multicultural multitude worshipping Jesus. And so, as I said, the first point... I think, of the purpose of showing us this is to encourage us that we are part of a great multitude 
that God is gathering, that the future is heading in this direction and nothing can stop that. This is God's vision and he will make it happen. But I think also a second purpose of of showing us this is to give us motivation and direction that we get to be part of this thing that God is doing in bringing this vision to reality. You know, being confident that God will do his thing has never been a reason to kind of sit back and be passive. It's a reason to get involved. This is God's vision for his world. I mean, don't you want to be involved in that? Shouldn't we want to be involved in that? Having this vision as our vision will mean that we will want to see and be part of the growing of this great multitude. Not content with just having a a comfortable and familiar few people around us that that we can encourage and, and can encourage us. While the world is out there, we kind of shut our doors to the world and, and some churches do that, and, and it's tempting to want to do that, particularly when we feel like we are facing opposition by the world out there. We want to just shut our doors and, and be comfortable together. But that's not God's vision for the world. We, we shouldn't be content with that. We shouldn't be content even just to have a full building. But we should look around us to see that the harvest is plentiful. There are people all around us who could become part of this great multitude. If only we would have eyes to see it and hearts to want it. People in Richmond, people in Hobartville, people in Agnes Banks, in Londonderry, in Castlereagh, in Yarramundi, in whatever suburb you live in. Your neighbours, old friends, school friends, people from work, people you play sport with, people you bump into at the shops. Wouldn't it be great to have a vision to see those people as part of that great multitude on that day. But as I said, this is also an international multitude. And so we should also be looking beyond our borders to the world at large. And I have to say it's a great encouragement to see that this is a church that has been a sending church. And we should have a vision to continue to be sending and praying for and supporting those who are going out with this vision of Jesus. And in a few weeks' time, in four weeks' time, we're going to be having Mission Sunday again to make sure that we keep that on the agenda. But also, and I think probably more significantly than that, God is bringing the nations to our doorstep. People who don't yet know Jesus and who may well come to know him, who God could be preparing their hearts to meet you, to meet one of us. I guess it's less obvious in Sydney right now, sorry, in Richmond right now, but Sydney is one of the most multicultural cities in the world. And it's only a matter of time before that becomes true of Richmond as well. And so we should be prepared for and to see that opportunity as it arises. And as it becomes true of Richmond, it should become true of our church that we should be a multicultural, multilingual, multiracial church because this is God's vision for his church. That's our first point. It's a vision of a great multitude. Our second point is that it's a vision of salvation by the blood of Jesus. Salvation by the blood of Jesus. Because see, what is it that, that marks this great multitude? What is it that defines them? 
Have a look at it there with me in verse 13 and 14. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, I'm going to come back to that idea of the great tribulation in a moment, but you see that the thing that marks this great multitude is that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, I've got to admit, my first kind of impression as I read this was to think, hasn't he spent much time in the laundry? Doesn't he know that blood doesn't make a particularly good laundry detergent? You can't wash things white in blood. But, of course, there's a a deliberate irony here. Yes, of course, you can't clean things in blood. You can't wash things white in blood. But the blood of Jesus does clean. If you were here last year when we looked at 1 John together, you might remember that we read in 1 John chapter 1, it says, The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. And Jesus himself said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And the Apostle Paul says that whatever your past, whatever your sin, if you have enduring trust in Jesus, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And the writer to the Hebrews says that because of this, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us, to, pure, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. This is what defines that great multitude who are gathered around the throne of God. They have been saved because they are washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And if we want to be part of this great multitude, then That's who we must be too. If we want our friends and our families and our neighbours to be part of this great multitude, then that's who they must be. And so this must always be on our lips and in our hearts. This is who we will be for all eternity. We will never forget that this is our identity, saved by the blood of Jesus. We will never move past it. Even after 10,000 times 10,000 years, this will be who we are. And notice that it's not a cause of shame for these people, that Jesus had to wash their sin away. It's a cause of rejoicing, that they can stand in the presence of God, holy and pure and able to serve him. We will wear these blood-washed robes for all eternity and praise him for it. That must be who we are now, if it will be who we are then now and always. And so I'll make no apologies for being repetitive about keeping bringing us back to this fact. And notice too, the the result of this salvation for this great multitude, the peace that they experience. Now, I, I did skip over before, as I said, the fact that these are people who've come out of a great tribulation. Now, tribulation simply means trouble, opposition, oppression, bad stuff happening That's what followers of the lamb who was slain experience in this world now, opposition. We face pressure 
to give up on following Jesus. And I'm sure you're aware that for many people throughout history, that has meant physical opposition, even death sometimes. But for others, it's meant other kinds of opposition. And maybe you are feeling that now. Maybe you are feeling that kind of opposition and pressure to give up on following Jesus in your own life now. The book of Revelation is very clear that the experience of believers here and now is not an easy one. Keeping going in trusting Jesus will not be easy. But these saints, these wearing white robes, are those who have come out of this great tribulation with their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. That is, they are the ones who have kept going in trusting Jesus, despite the trouble that it has brought them. They have persevered to the end. And boy, was it worth it. Have a look with me at verse 15 to 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down upon them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb of God at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And how, how good does that sound? You see this wonderful picture of the peace, the, the protection, the comfort, the provision that this saved multitude experiences, sheltered by the presence of God, provided for with everything they need, protected from any harm that might come. And the Lamb of God will lead them to springs of living water and he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. And that means every reason for tears, that whatever it is that might cause you pain now, will be gone. Whatever it is that might cause you sorrow or grief now, that will be gone. Whatever it is that might cause you suffering now, that will be gone. There is nothing too big, too powerful, too scary, too sad that God and the Lamb cannot shelter and protect us from, and he will. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is the vision of salvation by the blood of the Lamb. And what a vision it is. And finally, this is a vision of God himself. It's a vision of God. Now, I've left this to the end, but this really is the very centre of this vision. I mean, literally and also by emphasis. Have a look with me again from verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And skipping down to verse 10, And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God for ever and ever. Amen. You see, fundamentally, 
This is a vision of God. You know, I've made a point of focusing on the great multitude that are gathered around the throne of God, but the point really is that God is the one that they are gathered around. God and the Lamb together are on the throne at the centre of this great vision. They are the focus of everything that is happening. And so as much as we have spent time looking at what this great multitude are like, even more fundamental to this vision is the fact that eternity will involve praising God for this great salvation that we've just been looking at. And if that doesn't sound very appealing to you, then perhaps this is where you need to let this vision change your thinking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So you can't want to be a part of this great salvation without seeing that it is God who is at the centre and without wanting to put God at the centre of your own life now because that's what eternity will be like. Before anything else, this is a vision of God the Saviour and the Lamb who was slain. God is the one who provides the cleansing that we need. God is the one who provides the peace that we long for. God is the one who will shelter us with his presence. God is the one who provides every good thing that we need. Freedom from hunger, from thirst, from scorching heat. As the lamb leads us to to green grass and springs of living water. And he is the one who will wipe every tear from our eyes. See, when we have this vision of God, do you see how impossible it is to have, I guess you'd say, a pragmatic view of God and of salvation or a part-time view of God and salvation, where God is almost incidental, I don't want to say irrelevant, but incidental to my view of my eternity and my salvation. You know, I've got my ticket to heaven in my back pocket and that's good because I'd rather be in heaven than in hell, but I don't really have much of a vision for God in that picture. That doesn't even come close to what God's vision for us involves, of being gathered around his throne and around the Lamb, praising him and serving him in all eternity and basking in the goodness of what that is like. And this is not a chore. It's a joy Jesus tells us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is, what we value, our treasure, becomes the thing that we find joy in. And this vision is driving us to value relationship with God, who is at the centre of this vision and at the centre of our salvation. So that that becomes the source of our joy now. So that it becomes our motivation for serving now. You know, many of us are serving in all kinds of ways in church. We need to make sure that this picture of God is at the centre of that motivation for our serving so that he becomes the centre of our life now as it is for this great multitude forever. As I said at the beginning, my hope and my prayer is that this increasingly becomes your vision and my vision and our vision together. And so that it does direct and motivate and encourage us towards this very good end. I'm going to pray that it will. 
Heavenly Father, this is indeed a grand vision for the eternity that you are bringing about. And as we read it now, we can't help but see the, the grandeur of it and the wonder of it. And yet we know that our, our eyes, our, our vision is often crowded out by the things around us. And so, Father, we do ask that you will help us to see with the eyes of faith, that you will open the eyes of our hearts to, to know the hope that you have called us to and to, to long for this and to find joy in this. Father, please clear away those things that need to be cleared away so that we can see you more clearly, so that we can see your son Jesus at the centre of the throne more clearly, that we cling to the salvation that he has won for us by his saving blood and that we do persevere through whatever trial we are facing, that we come out with our robes washed clean in his blood. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen.